You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. It is time for some man cave here today. I don't know if you know, but uh, on your calendar, for a lot of you, it'll say June 14th, and it will say Flag Day. That's really actually a typo on your calendars. It's Flag Day today. Uh, they usually just drop the I, and, uh, but uh, it is Flag Day is what we like to affectionately call it in the flag household uh, on June 14th. But hey, I believe God has got you here today because he's got a message that he wants to communicate to you. Whether you are a man or a woman, uh, ladies, just let me say it straight up front. I believe that you are relationally savvy enough to take what we talk about today and transfer it to your life. I believe that today, ladies, you're going to be meeting with your heavenly father, the man in your life, the main man in your life, and that his Holy Spirit is going to uh, teach you. But guys, I'm going to speak just really directly to you men today, that we're going to talk about some things about what it looks like to be a man of God and, and what it looks like to build teleological relationships. And some of you are like, I don't even know what you just said. And that's okay. Because I just think in our culture, it, our culture downplays men. It downplays men being able to form mature and deep and authentic relationships with other men uh, or with one another or with women or anything else. It kind of just defaults us down to being, in a sense, like cavemen. But we don't want to be cavemen. We want to be men who build deep relationships. And I recently read this statement that says this. It said, men move toward whatever makes them feel competent. And right away when I read it, I knew that statement to be true. That men, we move toward whatever makes us feel competent. That if, if work makes you feel more competent, we will move toward work. Like if you're not feeling that competent at home, but you are at work, you're going to spend more and more time and energy and heart and effort at work because you move toward what makes you feel more competent. Men feel more competent when they engage in their hobbies because their hobbies are things that they perceive themselves to be good at. And so, guys, we move toward things that make us feel competent, like our hobbies. If you're rebuilding the engine of your car and you're a motorhead, you love cars, you're going to tell that engine what to do, and it's going to largely do it. And if it breaks a little bit, it just means you get to do another project and tell it what to do. Again, it's what you'd like to do. You're going to move toward to, you know, modeling and arranging and decorating and refurbishing that automobile or that engine. We move toward what makes us feel competent. Gadgets make us feel competent. Entertainment makes us feel competent. In fact, gadgets are great because you can tell your gadgets what you want it to do. You get your smartphone out, guys, and you tell it, here's what I want you to do. And at first, when you first get it, you might feel a little incompetent, but you learn how to use it. And then pretty soon you're like, hey, I can set the alarm. It wakes me up. I know how to answer a phone call. I know how to do all these different things on my gadget. And you tell it, for the most part, what to do. It's fairly straightforward. It's fairly simple. We like that. Even the complex stuff that technology enables us to do, we like the controlling nature of it because we feel competent. We will move toward what makes us feel competent. In fact, that's actually, I think, why a dog is man's best friend. I mean, think about it for a minute. Like, doesn't matter. You could, like, totally disappoint your dog, and it will forget, and it will love you anyways, right? That doesn't work in other relationships, right? Particularly relationships with the opposite sex. If you disappoint them, they're not just going to be like, bah, forget it, and love you anyway. It might take some rebuilding of trust. It might take some energy on your behalf 
in order to rebuild that trust. But, I mean, it's so easy because a dog just thinks that we are so competent. And that's why oftentimes a dog can become man's best friends. So a man cave is a place where guys get away, right? It's like the domain in the house. In other words, honey, you may decorate all the rest of the house. But the man cave, that's like domain. It literally is like these are my boundaries, my decisions, my borders. And so guys, it's kind of, you know, current that right now guys will try to create a portion of their house or around an entertainment center and around some of their hobbies and things that they like. And it can be a place maybe they can bring other guys and just be able to hang out. And they like it because it's a refuge. It's an escape. Because when they get in there, they can relate to one another in non-traditionally feminine ways. They don't have to do it like the feminine world. They can just be masculine. They can get together and just be men. They don't have to sit face to face and say, how do you feel? (laughs) We can just sit with each other side to side like, dude, I don't want to see your face. Just sit here and let's just, you know, relate to the sports or whatever else we got going. Let's throw darts or something, you know. And so people are currently building man caves. And and author Donald Miller writes, he wrote in a book called Scary Close. And he talks about relationships, and in there he writes this, I know I'm not alone in feeling awkward around the topic of intimacy. And what he's talking about is intimate in relationship, not sexual intimacy. He's just talking about relationships. He said, most of the guys I know feel the same. The problem is most men are actually great at intimacy, but we've been led to believe that we aren't. And I'm convinced that the confusion is costing us. Our world has an agenda, if you will, to downplay the strengths of men. And almost, almost to invalidate the fact that you can have a friendship, a tight brotherhood with other men without it carrying on other connotations you don't mean for it to have. And so we've been told that we're supposed to be self-sufficient and strong. And if we're going to do that, we've got to isolate a little bit. And now it tells us, go into your man cave where you can just be by yourself. And that's where you can have domain. But maybe in some of the other areas, you're not quite as competent as you otherwise might feel. So what does it look like for you and me to build a tight relationship with one another and a tight relationship with God? What does that look like? Well, here's why I think you and I, we need, men, the message today. Many of you are living in a relationship with God where your competent faith is based on what you believe in your head or what you've done with your hands or the ways you've served in the past. You could kind of line up the track record. Here's how I've served the church. Here's how I've given. Here's some good things I've done. And and that would be like physically what you could do. And then the other part of your relationship with God is cognitive. It's here's what I've believed in my head or the practices I've experienced in the past. Instead of, in fact, more than talking to God and listening to God. What's the condition of your relationship with God right now? And when I say that, I'm asking the relationship, your relationship with God. You know, we pray to God and we say, well, prayer works. And then sometimes you walk through seasons in your life where you're a little bit prayerless. I got to be honest with you, though, last week we asked you to step out of your comfort zone. Part of my job is to comfort the afflicted. But the other part of my job is to afflict the comfortable. And last week when I asked you to stand and get in groups of three and to pray with other people, some of you flipped out, and that's good. Because it means it's just simply, it is basically 
reaching into your comfort zone and drawing you out of that. Part of my job is to afflict the comfortable. But here's what happened. We prayed, and we prayed for rain. And if you looked at the forecast last week, it looked like the forecast this week. Yeah, give it up. And it rained. Now, I know there's some of you are sitting there, and you're like, come on. That's coincidence. And you're just saying, listen, that's kind of what you think about prayer. You're like, that's coincidence. And, and I get it. I mean, you're, you know, you're free to think that because, you know, you're absolutely free to be wrong. Because it's more than just coincidence. That prayer works, that God is strong, that we would humble ourselves and we would ask him. And God answered, and we will continue to, I would just encourage you, continue to pray for rain. But if that's true, if God would do that in terms of rain falling from the sky, which you and I cannot control, what about God's Holy Spirit watering the soil of our lives so that our relationship with God and with one another is able to grow? Could you pray for that? you're taking notes today, and I highly suggest that you do, uh, and if you're, if you're not taking notes, you also can write this in the blank, and that is this, that the turning point for men happens in quiet intimacy with God. If you're too cool to take notes, then write this anyhow. The turning point for men happens in quiet intimacy with God. Now, when I just said quiet intimacy, some dudes in the room are like, whoa, you just lost me. What the heck is that? And you're just wondering, what in the world do you mean? Now, what I mean is this, that some of you are stuck in parts of your life. You're just being carried along by relationship, including your relationship with God. Some of you are being carried along by your sin, and you're just, it's just taking you where it wants to take you, and it wants to take you and bring you to a destination that's take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and make you pay more than you want to pay. That's what sin does. And some of you are just being carried along by that. And some of you are just coasting in life. And some of you are like, I'm kind of working with this whole thing, and I've had a long history with God, but maybe there's not a lot fresh going on in my life right now. And what I want to say is, how do we turn? What's the turning point? How do, if we're driving down a road one way, and we're going south, and we need to go east a little bit, how do we go east? There's got to be a turning point. And so for us, what's the turning point? The turning point for men happens in quiet intimacy with God. If you have your Bible, open with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. But as you're flipping there on your smartphone or on your Bible, I'm going to just give you a little bit of 1 Kings 18. And it's the story of Elijah, a re very real man, a very real prophet in the Old Testament with a very real historically accurate occurrence that happened uh, in his life. He is a prophet of God in the nation of Israel. And what had happened is Israel had started to turn away from the true and living God. And they were starting to worship the God Baal. And the God Baal, that was his name, B-A-A-L. The God Baal was a God who would give like rain. And he was an agricultural God. So people would like worship. They would worship the Baal because it was an agricultural society. It was almost like part of their business plan. If we give honor and worship to Baal, then it may help my my agriculture grow, which means more income. It means it's kind of healthy. And, and it was to the extent where they would worship at false, these kind of almost like, uh, they called them Asherah poles that they would put up. They would also have temple worship that involved prostitutes. And if you slept with one of the temple prostitutes of Baal, then that was, that act of worship would kind of help you when it, it came to farming. I don't know how that parallels, but that's how, what they believed at the time. And the people of Israel were turning away from the true God to the lie of the culture. And so Elijah shows up and he says, this can't be. 
We need a wake-up call. There needs to be a turning point in our nation. And so what does he do? He gets down on his knees, and he prays that God would stop the rain. And he does. Now remember, Baal's in charge in the false god. He's apparently in charge of rain. This is direct opposition to him. This is in direct opposition to anything that Baal could, pro could promise toward your agriculture. And so he stops the rain. Three years without a drop of rain go by. We can almost relate, can't we? Just seeing our, our reservoirs go down. But this time goes by and there's no rain, but it's a wake-up call. In fact, the king doesn't like Elijah because he's a troubler. Like, you made it stop raining. And he knows. He knows you prayed for that and it stopped and it did. Well, after these three years, finally, Elijah calls the people together. He says, come on up to Mount Carmel. And they basically come up to the top of this mountain. It's not at Hershey, Pennsylvania or anywhere, but it's, it's, you know, it's called Mount Carmel. And you go there, it's this big mountain that overlooks a lot of the different plains in the area of Israel. And they go up on this mountain, and from the mountain you can see the Mediterranean Sea. It's not all that far away. But you're up on this mountain, and you're looking out over all the agricultural growth area of the land in the Shvelah that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And they go up on this mountain, and he gets all these Baal worshipers up there, and there's all the people of the nation of Israel all around, and they're bored, and so they're watching what's going on. And he says, we're going to have a competition. So they built two altars. They built one altar here, and they kill a cow, a, a bull, and they put it on the, on the altar. They build another altar here, and they kill the cow, and they put it on the altar. And Elijah says, listen, prophets of Baal, you guys go first. And whichever, we're going to appeal to the gods, and whichever god answers, that's who's God. So whoever answers by lighting these altars on fire then that's going to be God. So the prophets of Baal, they go all day long. They start going, they are just praying and praying and praying. After a while, nothing's happening. So they start slashing themselves with like blades and they're bleeding like, like, look how intense we are. We're crying out to you so intensely. Look at what we're doing to ourselves as worship and trying to like, you know, basically worship this God and deceive it like, well, all this time is going by. Hours are going by. Boring. People are getting disengaged. Elijah starts smack talking. He starts saying, hey, well, maybe your God's busy, guys. Maybe he's, this. in fact, at one point he goes, maybe he's relieving himself. He's been, your God's in the can. I mean, like, maybe your God's, like, you know, ate a little something bad last night, and he's unavailable. And so basically he starts smack talking, and finally after six hours, he goes, okay, that's enough. And Elijah comes over, and he has this altar here, and he digs a trench around it. Why would he dig a trench? Digs a trench around it. He says, I want you to get four large basins of water. They get the basin of water to pour them on the altar, over the, the sacrifice, over the wood, over the rocks. And he says, get four. And they get four big old jugs or jars, and they pour it over. He says, do it again. So four more. Four more big jugs of water. You know, people are getting thirsty just hearing this. And they're just, you know, pouring that water all over. And he goes, and he goes do it again. So now 12, you know, 12 Large jugs of water, some would say, representing the 12 tribes of Israel who would be all around. The water flows down. It fills up the trench around it. And then Elijah comes before God and he prays. And in that moment, fire falls from heaven. And it burns up the cow. And it burns up the wood. And it melts down the stones. In fact, it licks up all the water in the trench. Instantly, and the people fall down and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
In other words, they just absolutely realized, we've been watching this competition happen, and God answered. And let me tell you, it's a good idea if it's been a drought for three years, if you're going to call down fire from heaven, that you water that thing. Because otherwise, you know, who knows? The whole nation could go up, right? But I think with those 12 jugs, I think he's saying, listen, on behalf of the sin, the prostitution, the idolatry of our nation and the tribes that are represented in it, we're making this offering before you, God, and he burns it up. And they realize that he is God. So what happens? Elijah and the people turn on the false prophets of Baal. They kill them, 400 of them, just wipes out the entire competition. So that happens. It's just amazing. I mean, it's just huge. And then he basically goes and he says, all right, well, now that we've taken care of that and the people have chosen, we're going to respond to the true and living God. He says, I'll pray for rain. So he gets down, he begins to pray. And he sends his servant up on top of the hill. And he says, do you see a cloud? And the servant says, no, he keeps praying. Seven times he sends his servant up. Finally, the servant says, I see a cloud over the Mediterranean as small as a man's fist. And at that moment, Elijah got up and the prayers were answered. It's on its way. He goes tell the king, king, get in your chariot and race back to town because you're going to get stuck in the mud. Rain is coming. So the king does. He gets in his chariot, starts to head down. Elijah pulls up his, his coat, his cloak, and he races the chariot back to town, 17 miles back to town. And he beats the king because the king gets stuck in the mud. And I'm sure on that mountain there that, you know, Elijah took little shortcuts. I mean, who wouldn't, you know? If, you know, the chariot's got to go on the road, but he could, you know, you know, cut down and on the little runoff tracks. He was on the switchbacks. And so he goes down. He beats him. Okay, so he gets all the way back. It's this amazing thing. Let me just say, when it comes to prayer, that is not a bad day. I mean, in the same day... You call down fire from heaven, and you call down rain from heaven, that is not a bad day. That is a really good prayer day, wouldn't you say? It's just amazing. That's like the epic prayer day, right? This one guy calls down, nothing special about him except that God is with him, and he calls down, and God answers his prayer. So he runs down, and he beats the king back into town. The next day, something happened to Elijah that happens to a lot of us men. There's a trigger point, a trigger in his life. There's triggers in your life, things that trigger you toward feeling incompetent. And when that trigger happens, you feel disrespected. You feel like a man that you're not a man. You feel like that moment that your security is threatened and, and you begin to either fight or flight, right? Well, yesterday he fought and the trigger happened to him and now he's going to fly. What happened was the evil queen Jezebel threatened his life. She said, I'm going to basically kill you. You killed all my favorite prophets. By tomorrow, I'm going to have your head on a platter, basically is what she said. And he gets scared. So he doesn't fight anymore. He flies. And so what happens? He runs. He begins to feel, in a sense, like I can't stand against that threat. As you know, I mean, he just did all that other stuff yesterday. He didn't get on his knees. He didn't pray. He just ran. So he runs out into, the, into kind of the desert region. As he's traveling out there, he's got a servant with him. And at a certain point, he just says, servant, all right, about a day's trip. He says, you stay here. I'm going to keep going. And he ditches his servant, and he goes off into the desert to die. Feels used up. And the scripture says that the angel came to him and brings him food. And then our scripture picks up. 
the second time in 1 Kings 19, verse 7, it said this, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night. Now, I don't know about you, but I want some of that food. It's probably angel food cake. Don't you think that's what that is? Right? I mean, hey, 40 days, 40 nights. That's, that's good food if you only have to eat once every 40 days. But he goes out there and the angel gives him food. It strengthens him. It says this. And the word of, he went to the cave to spend the night and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I almost feel like Elijah, when he's saying this, is he's kicking dirt on the umpires, you know, as he's saying it. I'm the only one left. There's a lot of dust around here. Maybe it was mud by this point. 40 days later, I don't know. But he, it just feels like he's just kicking dust at God going, look, I'm alone. I, they, I, I'm poured out. There's nothing left you know, in me, and that now they're trying to threaten me, they're trying to kill me too. So what does God do with Elijah's pity party? Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Now, this is a little confusing to me. You may have heard me say it before, but when I read this passage the first time, I don't know about you, but we taught our kids first-time obedience. Like, if you're running toward the street, we want, and we say stop, we don't say stop, five, four, three, you know, car, you know, we, we, we want to say stop right now. So we trained our kids in, 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 in a right sense, discipline for their their benefit our kids to just do first time obedience we train you to obey the first time i don't want to be a nagging counting controlling parent i want to train you to obey first time and if god says to you as he did in verse 11 go out stand on the mountain in the presence of the lord for the lord's about to pass by you go right away wouldn't you as would i so here's what i think happens he goes out on the edge of the mountain. He's standing there on the side of the mountain. He's not in the cave anymore. And then a great and powerful tornado-like wind comes, and it's tearing the mountain apart and throwing rocks around. And the last place you want to be in a tornado is on the side of the mountain. So you go, ah, and you run back in the cave. Then a great and mighty earthquake happens, and everything's shaking, and rocks are falling from the ceiling. And the last place you want to be in an earthquake is in a cave. And so you go, Ah, and you run back out, you know, and you get outside the mountain, and then all of a sudden you're on the hillside and, of the mountain, and then this big, huge brush fire, this fire starts coming down. And the last place you want to be in a brush fire is above it on the mountain and have that thing raise up toward you. So you go, ah, and you run back in the, in the cave, and you hide in there, and your heart's still pounding, and earth, wind, and fire hasn't released an album yet, so you don't know if that's it. <laughs> and his heart's just pounding like, what is that? And then he hears the most scary thing that he thought. It was this gentle whisper. He pulls his cloak over his face this time. Like, I can try to run from the other things, but I can't compete with that. And he just has an honest moment with God. And a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, and then he replied, got to hand it to Elijah. Sticks to his script, like most men. 
said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. And then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. And when he's saying succeed you, he's not saying replace you. Please understand that. God is not saying, you're benched. I got a new starter. What he's saying is, listen. I'm going to have you anoint, as a prophet would, the new political leadership of the land, godly leadership over the land. I'm going to have you anoint them to be those governmental positions, and they're going to go through the land and kind of clean shop. They're going to say, we're taking our country in a new direction. And then he says this, I'm going to have Elisha, I want you to anoint him to succeed you. What's he saying? Elijah, I'm going to give you a legacy. You are not done. In fact, I'm giving you a brotherhood around you. And then I'm going to give you a guy who's going to carry on the work when you're gone. In other words, I'm giving you a legacy. You're not done. You're not washed up. You're not finished. And God begins to just tell Elijah, I am for you. I am with you. I will surround you with brothers to help be a turning point in your life. But he also isn't going to put up with Elijah's entitlement and pity party. And so God says this. Oh, he says this. He says, verse 17, Jehu will put to death and you escape the sword of Hazael. Elisha will put to death and you escape the sword of Jehu. Listen, then God says, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, there are other people who are pursuing me, who are faithful to me. You are not the only one. It's not you against culture. It's God saying, I have many Enough to surround you and to continue the work that I've been doing in and through your life. Well, let me ask you, what are your triggers? Men in the room, what are the triggers that make you feel incompetent? When someone does this, your reaction is, I try to fight or flight. Is it shame? You're just ashamed. You know what you've done. You know your life. And, and that shame is an instant trigger that makes you not approach God. You just want to be carried along, showing up. Be just, let's just do good enough. Maybe it's disrespect from a woman. Maybe it's a boss who tells you that you're incompetent. It might even be a frustrating home project, something you feel like I should be competent at it, but because I got to go to Home Depot five times, I suddenly feel incompetent at it, and it grows bigger than I thought it was going to be, and then suddenly maybe you react. What are your triggers? What are the triggers that make you run? See, triggers cause us to sever relationship and become cavemen. That's what he did. He ran away out in the desert to die. God sends him to the mountain. And when he gets to the mountain, he goes into a cave. And so he's a, he's a caveman. He said, I've, I've broken off our relationship. I've broken off my support network. But now I'm just going to be like a caveman. And that's what our culture says I am. And that's what that person who triggered me says I am. So I'm just going to be that. Could you imagine for just a minute... Let's say Elijah's caveman name is Grog, like Brendan Fraser in Encino Man. Right? Ugh, Grog can't eat. Need angel to bring food. You know, can't, can't do it. Maybe he's like, oh, 
you know, he's scratching his head. Oh, I can't follow a map, need destination, don't know how to get to mountain of God, right? He's just scratching his head. Maybe he's like, oh, Grog can't get to close to other man, leave servant here, need isolation, right? That's what we do. We become like caveman. And Elijah's no different. But what Elijah is learning and what you and I need to learn today is that all relationships are teleological. You say, what in the world does that mean? All relationships are teleological. It means that they're going somewhere. Listen to me. All relationships are actually living. They're alive. Relationships aren't stagnant. Relationships are always moving. They are becoming something. So my question to you is, where is the relationship you've started with someone going? If you think of all your relationships, where is that relationship going? They're going to go somewhere. And some of you have false started. You got into a relationship and really realized, oh, that's not going where I want. And then you pull back. Others of you are just being carried along. I'm just carried along with, well, whatever happens. You know, I just, you might start dating this guy or girl, and you're just like, hey, just, you know, whatever happens. And, and men, I'm going to speak to you real honestly here. I just got to let you know, men, that girlfriend you have, she's not just your buddy. You can't just live like you're married and behave like you're married and think that she's okay with it, even if it's sometimes she says she's okay with it. Because even if you both feel like we're kind of okay with that arrangement, you're not on the inside because relationships aren't stagnant. Relationships are going somewhere. And typically the question we're going to ask at some point, whether now or later, is where is this going? And what if some other relationship seems to be going somewhere, but this one becomes stagnant? Then I'm going to try to choose maybe to go with that one, right? And that's why cohabitation fails so often. The question is, where are your relationships going? Maybe for you, you're in a business and you're looking at a new business partnership or a relationship or an arrangement and you're saying, this could be it. I know this person from way back and maybe this person being here will make the difference or maybe that'll open up a new revenue stream for us. And there's something so attractive about that relationship for you. And I want to ask, will that relationship compromise your ethics? Will that relationship cause you to compromise what you originally set up or what you're doing right now? Are you looking to trust in that relationship of business more than your heavenly provider? Where is that relationship going? Guys, you might be a married guy in the room or you might be a single guy, but let me ask, that girl you're hanging out with, where is that relationship going? I mean, think about it. Within a few months, you might be the only guy who just gets her, that just listens to her, that understands her. And, and maybe she's married, and now all of a sudden you're a surrogate husband. And within a few months, what? You're having an affair with a married woman. Where is that relationship going? See, most of us just let relationships carry us along. We just stand and we're like, hey, just whatever happens. And we're just carried along with the flow relationships just kind of happen. They're not guided relationships. Seems easier to just let relationships take a natural course instead of guiding them to a healthy place. But you need to realize that teleological, there's a teleological argument for the existence of God. You know what that means? That we can see in the design that there's an intelligent creator. 
So what does teleological mean? It's guided. It's intelligent. And the question is, how do you and I build guided relationships, intelligent relationships? Because all relationships are going somewhere. Heather and I just celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary this week. It was very cool. And uh, recently we had friends get married, and they got married down in Santa Cruz, but we decided to bounce down there a couple days early and just be together down there. Now, please understand, we love our boys, we love our family, and honestly, most times we go on a trip anywhere, it's the whole family. We all go. I mean, there have been a lot of anniversary trips. We all go. Why? Because I, as a dad, am looking at this season of life, and I'm going, there's lots of anniversaries later on or it'll be just us but right now in this season literally within four or five years we could all be empty nesters in our house because we did three kids in three years so when they eventually go to god's next adventure in their life it could potentially happen quickly so i'm trying to make the most of every day but in that suddenly you know you begin to get those thoughts in your head well wow we're so wrapped up around the kids what's it going to be like when the kids are gone do do we know each other what what's are, are we going to be okay and just getting away on that trip where we went down to Santa Cruz, it was just awesome because I was like, oh my goodness, we are good friends, we're best friends, we relate to one another, we're, we're going to be okay, we have things to talk about. And you just didn't wonder if the boys leave, and you're like, oh, what do we have to talk about? But the truth is, we, we got lots of things to talk about, and we're going to be okay, and we can guide our relationship because Heather's smart and I'm smart, and together we'll guide our relationship into what that next season for us looks like. It can be teleological, can it? can be guided. So let me ask men, right now, where's your relationship with Jesus Christ going? See, when we just have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but we don't guide it, atrophy happens, right? We start to backslide. If you're not in motion, you begin to slide downhill, right? And we feel that and we begin to go, oh, I can't, I can't rest on the past or I can't rest on cognitive belief or what I've done with my hands. I can't, I, where's that relationship with Jesus going now for you? See, most men are actually great at intimacy. You really are, even in intimacy with God. But there's a very real enemy who wants to convince you otherwise. You have been led to believe that you're not good at intimacy, that, well, I don't know what you mean, like, listen to God or, or listen to his word. or I, I don't know what that means to have a relationship with God that seems very feminine, very weird. You know, you don't picture it like man cave. You picture it like face-to-face -face at a restaurant and you have to share your feelings. But that's not what having a relationship with God is like. He's going to meet you right at the point of your gender in addition to your humanity. And he's going to meet you in, uh, along the lines of relationship. So here's the deal. If I'm Satan, I don't want you to be with God. I don't want you to get to a point where you hear that still, small voice, where you hear the gentle whisper. So what do I need to do? If I'm Satan, I'm just being honest with you. If I'm Satan, then here's what I do. I will convince you that you're not competent in a relationship with God. That's all I got to do. If I just think, man, you can't do that. You've tried before. You can't do that. You don't actually want to do this right now, do you? That's all I got to do. I just got to convince you. You, just, you got more important things to do. But, you know, get serious about all this stuff later on. One of these days becomes none of these days, right? That's all I got to do if I'm Satan. If I'm Satan, I would try to make you fear that still small voice. And here's what I would do. I would try to convince you, if I was Satan, I would try to convince you that God will blow you away, bury you, or burn you. 
that God's going to blow you away in that tornado, that God's going to bury you in the cave in the earthquake, or that God's going to burn you, and you'll step toward him, and he'll make it miserable for you. That's all i got to do if I'm Satan. And guess what? Now you don't pray. Now fire doesn't fall from heaven or rain from the skies. Now things don't change in your life. You're carried along by whatever happens. That's all i got to do if I'm Satan. But the beautiful thing is when you and I listen to the still small voice, we realize that God is for us. So number three, a man's competency is in guided intimacy with God. Where is it that you and I learn that we're not washed up? Where is it that you and I learn that we have work yet to do? Where is it that you and I learn that we turn away from our sin and we turn back toward God and he does not reject us but embrace us with open arms and train us to be walking wise? You know what's interesting? We got to get alone and get with God. I'll be honest with you. I had my sermon done Tuesday, which is pretty early. Tuesday, had it done, sermon notes all done, ready to give my little outline to the, the, uh, our gal in the office who does a great job with all of her graphics and, and puts everything together. Ready to go, right? Tuesday. But I knew in my heart it was competent, but it wasn't what God wanted to say. Like, I did it, and it'll be good, and I'll use it someday, I'm sure. But God was like, this is not right for the right time right now. I literally was back to the drawing board Wednesday morning, and I sat before the Lord in my man cave with the Lord, just me and him. And I just said, God, give me a word. What do you want to say to your people? And the office ladies were waiting. Late Thursday, they got stuff so they could print off Friday. Let me tell you guys something. Fortunately for most of us, you might be like, I don't know how to listen to God. And you know, that's okay. Because it takes a while for us to learn to, uh, to recognize the voice of the Lord in our conscience on the inside. But the way that we do it, the filter through which we hear God is his word. And fortunately, his word is a lot less scary than that gentle whisper. I mean, the beautiful thing about God's word is it's right here. It's available anytime. It's tangible. You and I can have it at any moment. And his word is available to us. And it's beautiful because when you and I come to his word and we begin to walk with him in his word, he reminds me I'm still very competent. And he builds a team of brotherhood around me. It's so important. But we've got to get alone with God and spend time in his word. And there are great Bible plans out there. If you want to get into Bible reading, do that. And, and, you know, and the enemy would try to convince you, hey, you don't like reading unless it's only like the sport page. But the truth is God would say, no, I've created you. And if reading's difficult for you, we've got technology that, that will overcome any of your accessibility requirements. You can hear it on audio. You can read it. You can do a reading plan. You have more accessibility to the Word of God than any generation in the history of humanity. So that's not our excuse. But we come before him and we realize that we are very competent. He builds a team of brotherhood around us because teleological relationships take design, which means God's working on his end to guide us, that we're responding on our end to guide, and we're taking responsibility for our spiritual life. Let me be honest with you. I'm not responsible for your spiritual life. Do you know that? You are. I'm going to encourage you. But if you're going to choose just to show up 
and just to show up and, and just be carried along, that's all you're going to receive is showing up and being carried along. But you're responsible for your spiritual life. And let me tell you, there's nothing more that makes a man than seeing a man say, I take responsibility, right? When a man decides, not somebody else pressuring him or someone patronizing him, triggering him. When a man decides, I'm going to take responsibility for my spiritual life, there is a fresh confidence that comes about that man. When a man says, I'm taking responsibility for my finances, I'm taking responsibility for my spiritual maturity, I'm taking responsibility for my leadership and my family. When a man decides that, he's not being pressured to do it, but when a man decides to do that, there's almost nothing that will stop that man. He is a confident man because he understands I'm taking responsibility for the teleological nature of my relationship with God and with others. So men, here's your top priority this week. My top priority this week is to guide my relationship with God to a place where I grow. You decide. You decide how you're going to get alone with God in your man cave. You're going to decide how to get alone with God and be him, mano y mano, just right with the Lord, you and him, and begin to develop relationship with him, to walk with God. Not just walk for God, walk with him. That's a huge difference, isn't it? It's like the difference of working for your family to provide for them or being with your family, which has a bigger relational component. Second, this begins when I read his word and I listen to my conscience. What's going to happen? You and I are going to interact with the, the word of the Lord. We're going to get in our man cave. We're going to spend time with him. And as we spend time with him, his gentle whisper is going to begin to speak to our heart. And you say, well, how do I know that's God telling me that and not just my own thoughts or whatever? You're going to begin to discern. You're going to give it the test of time. You're going to listen and keep listening, and God's going to help guide you away from sin. And God's going to help guide you to begin to make guided changes in your life that become the turning point of where you are right now. So let's redefine your man cave. Man cave is the place now where you will go to be with God. Man cave is a place where it's your refuge, your strength, your refreshment, your learning and growing. It's not the place where he blows you away or buries you or burns you. It's the place where you begin to hear from the living God who wants to speak to you, men, as he rebuilds you and guides you. That's the place. That is your top priority this week. It's not planning your vacation it's not dealing with your list of to-dos. It's not investing in your newest hobby. Your top priority this week is getting in your man cave with God. And if you do, fire could fall from heaven. Rain could fall to earth. God will cause a turning point in your life. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we're so grateful that you're here with us today. I thank you that you, God, are active and living God, we want to be the people who say thank you for rain this last week, that we don't want to be like the 10 lepers in the New Testament who were healed of the leprosy and only one came back to say thank you. But God, we want to be the people who right now corporately, we just say thank you, God. We know that you answered our prayer. And in the same way, God, we continue to lift up our land. We pray for rain. We pray for refreshment in our soil and our land that you make the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. But more importantly, God, we ask you, to not let that rain get us stuck in the mud, but to bring us to a point where we pray on the more important matters of life. 
that get us unstuck. And so God, we thank you that prayer is powerful and we're gonna invest in being with you even this week. As we continue just a time of prayer, there may be some of you in this room right now, if you, you know Jesus, you're in a relationship with God, but you're realizing right now that God's Holy Spirit has just been leaning on you in terms of one of the relationships you have. And this might be a time as they dim the lights down that you would maybe just repent. Repent means just turn back toward God. You and I, we all get caught up in relationships that are going somewhere that ultimately we really know they shouldn't go. But the beautiful thing about being a believer is that you can turn, that you can repent, that you can walk back toward God. And this may be that time that you're doing that. There's others of you in this room, you're saying, listen, Dave, I, I don't even know God. I, I've never given my life to God. I've never come into relationship with him. And today you would like to ask God to come into your life and forgive you of all your sin and begin relationship with God, not just knowing about him, but knowing him. And if today you would like to ask him to have that kind of relationship with you, if you'd like to surrender yourself to him, then pray a prayer like this right where you're seated. You just repeat it in your, in your chair, just quietly, just right where you're at. God hears you. He hears the cry of your heart. But pray a prayer like this. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to relationship with you. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, and that you rose to new life, that you are God. And so today, Jesus, I give you me. Today, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer, will you raise up your hand? Anywhere around the room, just hold your hand up right here on the end. I've got some friends who would like to just give you some information, helping you understand that decision you made. Just hold your hand up long enough anywhere around the room. They'll find you. They just want to give you some information and just help you with that. Awesome. Anywhere else around the room, just hold your hands up high. Awesome. God, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing in us. We thank you for what you're doing through us. God, I thank you for the men in this room. I believe you want to do great things in and through them. God, you are guiding us to have a brotherhood with one another. God, you're wanting to do great things in the men in this room that feel like maybe greatness is out of reach for them. But God, with you, nothing is out of reach. And so we ask you, God, to do great things in and through us beyond our capacity. That's totally your competency, God. And that's a gift of grace. So we respond to being with you and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.